morning, church. Let's read God's word together. It'll be in Mark 9, verses 14 through 29, Pew Bible, page 1074. Starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Begin with a question this morning, church family, uh, and you can raise your hand. We don't do that often uh, to, to questions that are asked from the pulpit, but um, I'm kind of interested to know. Any of you wake up this morning and say, man, you know what? I just can't wait. Uh, beautiful day the Lord's made today. I can't wait to fail today. <laughs> no one? Uh, not everybody's hand at once, right? This is crowd participation moment, so you can raise your hand. Nobody woke up this morning and said, man, I just can't wait to fail today. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Why? Why wouldn't you wake up and have that attitude this morning? Well, because we all know that failure's, failure's not, never fun. Failure is not something we look forward to. It's, it's usually not something we take delight in. We don't take delight in defeat. We don't take the light in failure. And uh, I've been watching a little, little, little college basketball, March Madness, right? I know some of you have as well. We've talked about it. And there's been some, uh, some really high-ranked uh, seats that have beaten some really low-ranked seats, especially in the state of Virginia. Uh, sorry for you Virginia fans. Um, 
Nobody woke up on the Virginia basketball team this week and thought, man, I can't wait to lose our game. I can't wait to go in and just get uh, beat by the number 16 seed. That's going to be so fun uh, getting, getting beat. Failure's not fun. We don't look forward to it. It's not something we take delight in. It's painful. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing even. But we know that everyone fails. Everyone will fail. Every one of us in this room today probably, this week, this year, will go through times of defeat. But in those times, we're given opportunity to learn. We're given opportunity to learn from our failures, from our defeats. And failures can either make us bitter or failures can make us better. And that's really cliche, but failures can be opportunities for us to learn, for us to grow. And you can have a couple different reactions to failure. And I'm not talking about just Christian failure in our Christian walk, but just failure in general, in general, in life. Just life in this world. You can have a couple different responses to failure. Either one, you can respond and say, well, obviously I need to work harder if I'm going to su- succeed. I'm going, I'm going to have to do something better. I'm going to have to work harder at this particular thing if I'm going to succeed at it. Or either I'm going to continue failing. Or there's another option. You can say, hey, as I move forward from this, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by myself. I'm going to need help. And I pray that as we study the text today, as we look at Mark 9... I pray that we arrive at the second conclusion more and more often than the first. That we understand, as the disciples were learning in the text, that we desperately need help. We need Christ. Or we will keep repeating the same behavior. We'll keep failing uh, in life. And the disciples in our text, they needed to learn that. They needed to understand, let my weakness drive me to his strength. Let my limitations drive me to his unlimited power. Let my humility drive me to his sufficiency. Our failures should show us that. Our failures should push us that direction. And yes, the disciples in our text need to learn that lesson, but they've got a ways to go before they get there. They've got a ways to go before they get there. But in our text today, we have a father who has a, a son that's in desperate need a suffering son, and this father is about to make this magnificent uh, discovery that in his moment of weakness, in his moment of failure, in his moment of the disciples' failure, what he sees more than anything is that he needs the power of the Son of God. And so a bit of recap for you if you've not been with us. We've been studying through Mark's gospel. Mark has been showing us every week that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, And in the first half of Mark's gospel, he demonstrated this to us by showing us Jesus' authority. He showed us that over and over and over, showing us that he has authority to teach, unlike anyone that's ever lived. Having an authority over nature, that he can speak and the wind and the storms obey him. He has an authority over sickness. He has an authority over death, that he can speak and one who's been dead can be raised to life again. Mark has been showing us this. The second half of Mark's gospel. He will show us Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, by demonstrating his mission. Christ is going to be making a beeline to the cross. He's going to be headed straight to Calvary, and in that we'll see that he is the Son of God. The disciples have seen him heal. They've seen him teach. They've seen him demonstrate his authority over nature. They've seen him demonstrate his authority over death. They've been traveling with Jesus. He's been teaching them. And then seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus begins talking about his own death, about his own resurrection. And this is such a foreign idea to these disciples that have been following him. How could the Son of God, we've seen that, we've seen him raise people from the dead, how can he himself die? This is, this is a ludicrous thought for them. 
And then, shortly after that same, same teaching, he tells the disciples that they too must take up their crosses and go to their death. They must take up an execution device and march to their deaths if they're going to follow Christ. And then last week, we saw Peter, James, and John were taken by Jesus to go up on the mountain. And it was on that mountain where the, Jesus momentarily pulled back the curtain, if you will, and allowed the disciples, these three disciples, to get a glimpse of his glory. The text says that he was transformed or transfigured before their very eyes. That they saw Christ and his glory on the mountain. And this incredible scene was for the purpose, again, of confirming that Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. He is deity. The Father spoke from the cloud, this is my Son. Jesus revealed his glory and that he was transfigured before their eyes. And the people worshipped. Peter, James, and John stood in awe. It says that they saw Jesus only. And this is what happens when we encounter God. Not on a mountain like Peter, James, and John, but when we come before the Lord and we, we hear the Father speak through his inspired, inerrant word, we hear him speak. We see the glory of Christ in the resurrection and the cross. We stand in awe and we worship. We saw Peter speak up in that moment. The text says he didn't even know what to say. So he says, hey, let me go get some tents and we'll just camp out right here on this mountain. One for Elijah, one for Moses, one for you. We'll stay right here in this moment because it's that good. We just need to stay here and rejoice in this moment. We knew they couldn't do that. And today we see as the story continues exactly why they couldn't do that. There was a world in desperate need of Christ. And it started at the foot of the mountain. It started as soon as their feet hit the ground from this mountain trip. And that's where we pick up today. The disciples come down the mountain from, from having seen Jesus transfigured in his glory. So a little bit of a road map where we're headed today. We see the failure of the disciples. We see them uh, defeated and fail miserably. And then from that to solutions or to remedies, to uh, answers we find to failure, both of them found in Jesus, both of them found in Christ. So three points this morning. The failure, two responses to it in Christ. So number one. We see this in verse 14 through 19. We need Jesus when we fail miserably. Number one, we need Jesus when we fail miserably. We briefly mentioned this last week. I'll remind you, mountaintop experiences are, are great. Mountaintop experiences are needed. Um, Jesus meets with the disciples, shows them his glory. It's an incredible experience. They want to stay there in that moment. They're good times. They're, uh, whether it was a, a church camp for you or a mission trip for you or a, or a season of time for you, maybe a, a season of five years where you just know you were walking with the Lord, his presence in your life was so clear and evident, you were communing with him daily. Those things are not wrong. They're not sinful. They're good, and they're given by God for spiritual nourishment, for communion with him. He never intended these disciples, though, to stay on this mountain. He never intended them to just camp out in these tents, as, as Peter suggested, and just be there in that moment forever. He wants us down here. He wanted them at the bottom of the mountain. He wants us ministering to a world around us that's hurting and suffering. He wants us living life among people that are devastated by the effects of sin in the fall, devastated by a fallen world. He wants us to live as his people, as his agents of redemptive love and grace among a people that have no idea and are in desperate need of something they have no knowledge of. So we go in his name. We go in the name of Christ. We go under the authority of Christ. We go with the promises of his grace to a broken world, to a hurting world. 
And when we forget this, when we forget that we go in his authority and his name and with his promises, then we are certainly up against failure and pain and humiliation, difficulty. And nine of the 12 disciples are about to get a crash course in that kind of failure and humiliation. Let's read again, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So set, set the scene for you. Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John, come down the mountain. They find a crowd gathered. There's a crowd that's gathered up. And, and the other nine disciples are in this kerfuffle with the scribes. They're, uh, they're in this dispute with the scribes. Again, this is not new for us. We've seen this since the very beginning of Mark's gospel. Further, there's a demon-possessed boy that the disciples have been unable to help. The effects of this demon on this boy are tragic, and we'll look at that in a little bit more detail later. No doubt these scribes, though, these religious leaders of that day, were giving it to the disciples because they failed to help this young boy. Remember, these scribes, from the first time we meet them, they're trying to disprove that Jesus is the Messiah. They're trying to say that he's not the Son of God. They're trying to find any way that they can trip him up or trap him. And so no doubt they would have taken this opportunity to say, see, we told you so. These guys that are his followers, they're not able to, they're not able to help this young boy. This is all just smoke and mirrors. It's all just fake. It's all just a show. And again, church family, the, the application here, and this is not the primary point of application of this text, but I think there's a lesson here for us to learn. That our sin is never just our sin. It affects those that are around us. The sin of the disciples, this unbelief in the disciples, this failure in the disciples reflected badly upon Jesus, upon Jesus and his mission. And our failures reflect badly upon Jesus as well and upon one another. I have a good friend who's a great preacher, Landon Dowden. He says this all the time, my sin, our consequences. Do we have that kind of an attitude and, and, and mentality when it comes to our failures? Our sin, or my sin, our consequences, that as brothers and sisters in Christ at Poplar Spring, when I sin, it affects every one of you. When I sin, it affects my family. When we sin, we hurt ourselves, we hurt those we love, we hurt our church family, and we hurt the name of Christ. And so when we fail, we all will, we must point people to Jesus, the one who will never fail, the one who will not stumble, the one who will not fall short. When the enemy, in this case the scribes for the disciples, when our enemy, whether earthly or uh, Satan, the enemy, comes at us and points out our shortcomings, which he will do, and which he can do accurately because we fall short, put a spotlight on Jesus Christ. When he reminds you of your failures, when your enemy or, or, or that person at work that just has it out against you, when they come to you and try to, try to put you down and remind you of the places you've fallen short, put a spotlight on Jesus because he won't fall short. Encourage them to follow the example of the crowd in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him. That's what it looks like to, to deflect attention from us and put it on Christ. Yes, we're going to fall short. Yes, our detractors can point out accurately our flaws because they're many. They'll never find one in Christ. So turn and put the spotlight on him. Point him, them to him. Well, the, key, the punches keep coming for the disciples. As if their enemies, the scribes, were not enough. As if this accusation from the scribes were not enough to deal with. They then have 
a demon that comes at them in full force as well, a spiritual enemy that adds to the insult here of, of, of failure. Look at verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever he see, it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. In verse 16, Jesus asked this question. We saw it earlier as we read. What are you arguing with them about? This question from Jesus, what are you arguing with them about? An answer comes from the crowd, but it's not from the disciples that he's asking the question to. The boy's father is the one that speaks up. And it's to inform Jesus of, of what's been happening here. And if you, if you put all of this together, this scene is horrifying. If you read the other gospel accounts of, of this story and put them together and see what all of them are saying together, it's a, it's a horrifying a, a picture that, that we have of this young boy's life. Demon seizes the boy. In Luke chapter 9, it says that he, he screams out in agony. It throws him to the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes stiff as a board. It's regularly tried to destroy the boy by drowning him and by throwing him in fire. So you can just imagine this, this young boy's body covered in burn scars. The demon has made him deaf and mute. It's caused the boy to have seizures, and it's been like this since childhood. This is something this, this young man has dealt with his entire life. Friends, don't let this just be a story from Scripture that happened 2,000 years ago. Place yourself there. As parents, imagine this is your child. The agony, the, 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 the desperate sense of, of, of hopelessness that you would have if you've, if you've watched your child endure this kind of torment his entire life. This kid's entire existence was, was like he lived in an aquarium. He can see what's going on around him, but he can't hear. And he can't speak. And, this, and this, this spirit that's living inside of him is causing him great harm to his physical body. The kid's entire life, the kid's entire existence was, was miserable. The father came to see if Jesus could help. The disciples, though, have been able to do nothing in Jesus' absence. And we've already studied the demonic a few times in Mark's gospel. It's, this is, this is, there's multiple times that this comes up, demon possession, spirit possession, and so we won't spend a great deal of time here. But in summary, Danny Aiken in his commentary gives us six things uh, that we know to be true of the demonic in this passage. And so uh, I'll give you these really quickly. And if you're not uh, able to write them down, I can give them to you later if you're interested in having them. But number one, demons are real. <laughs> They're not mythological creatures. They're not just fake things that exist in stories. Jesus believed they were real. Number two, demons de uh, desire to inflict pain and death. Number three, Demons are capable of inflicting physical suffering. Number four, in our own strength, we're helpless against the supernatural powers of the demonic. In our own strength, we're helpless against them. Number five, spiritual victories in our past. Again, remember Mark 6. These very same disciples have already cast out demons. And our, our spiritual victories in the past are no guarantee that we'll be victorious today, especially when we're operating in faith in our own uh, abilities, faith in ourselves, and not in Christ. And number six, when all human efforts have been exhausted, we can turn to Jesus, or better, start by turning to Jesus because he has power in our weakness. 
So these disciples are having a rough day of it. Their earthly enemies, the scribes, are, are giving them grief over um, being able to do nothing for this child. The demon is basically mocking their inability, uh, causing this boy physical pain right before their very eyes. And they're, no, they're not able to do anything about it. But their day just gets worse. It continues, verse 19. And he answered them. This is Jesus speaking. He answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Bring him to me. Correction, discipline, rebuke is seldom a fun experience. It's not something we wake up in the morning and go, man, I can't wait to get to work today and get rebuked. Man, it's the highlight of my day. Hard words, they bruise. They can also bless. And here Jesus is tough. He's direct. He's firm in his rebuke of the disciples he calls them a faithless generation. And there's some discussion among scholars as to the extent of this statement, exactly who Jesus is giving this title to. The word generation is usually used to speak of Israel, particularly when God was making note of, of how unbelieving the nation of Israel was with its leadership. We know Jesus is expressing deep emotion here, though. He uses the, the O in front of faithless generation. O, faithless generation. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus be feeling this as he says it? Well, these are the 12. These are the ones that he's commissioned back in Mark 6 to go that, he might, that they might preach the gospel and they might uh, anoint and heal the sick and cast out demons. And, and they've done that already. And now in a moment where Jesus has left them for a second, they are powerless. They, they can't do it. They failed at the thing that he's commissioned them to do. Mind you, we've been given a commission. He asked some rhetorical questions here to express his weariness, to express their lack of faith. How long am I going to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In all of this, we see a valuable lesson that the disciples are learning in the midst of the school of hard knocks. We would do well to learn today as well that we are never, never beyond our need for Jesus. We're never beyond our need for Jesus. It doesn't matter that we've, that we've accomplished something in our past. These disciples likely said, hey, you know, we've been here, done this. We, we've seen this before. We can, we can take care of this young boy. We never advance beyond our need for Jesus. This was a fitting word for these disciples. It was a rebuke they needed to hear, and it's a fitting word for the church today. Never in the history of the church has the church been so well-equipped so uh, financially equipped, wealthy, instructed, access to the Bible and to, uh, to study helps that would help us to understand the Bible. Never has the church had such access to this and yet so powerless in the culture and in the world that we live in. We must see our master's diagnosis here. We are in desperate need of Jesus daily, church family. We must also see the remedy we need to hear his diagnosis, but we need to see his remedy, and that's what comes next as we continue in the text. Our second point, if you will, we need Jesus to give us faith. We need Jesus to give us faith. Look at verses 20 through 27. Remind you of a couple of verses before we continue in our text. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verse 6, a familiar text for us. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8. 
Michael preached this verse not long ago. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Well, what is a gift of God? The faith through which you're saved by grace. It is a gift of God. So, putting this idea together, if faith is necessary to please God and faith is a gift from God, then we are in radical need for Jesus to give us faith. What do we learn about that faith here? Well, the key for the disciples, the key for us today as the church today, the key is not the depth or the quantity of faith. The key is the direction of our faith. To say it another way, what is important is not the potency or the power of our faith, but the person in whom our faith is in. And you see this demonstrated so clearly in the text. Look at verse 19. We'll read through 22. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has it been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Don't miss this next part of this verse. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. Playtime for this demon is over and the demon knows it. As far as uh, this demon is concerned, as soon as Jesus draws near, the demon knows that his end is near for his uh, hosting in this boy and he begins to make the boy convulse. And the father, desperate since this boy's childhood for an answer, for a cure for this boy, now turns to the only possible source of hope for his son, Jesus. Did I tell you that the person of our faith is key? Not the potency, not not, not the amount of our faith, but the direction, the person of our faith. And that person is Jesus. And so he begs, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The man's faith is small. The man's faith is weak. He's not been following Jesus like these disciples. He's not seen all the miracles that Jesus has performed. He's not been traveling with these disciples and hearing the authoritative teaching of Jesus. He's not been shown all the ways that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets as Jesus has been instructing his disciples. He's not been on the mountain for three days like Peter, James, and John and and seen Jesus transfigured before his very eyes. He didn't hear the voice from the cloud where the Father says, this is my son. He didn't have experience with all of that. His faith was small and it was weak, but it was in the right direction. And he called out to the only one who was able to help. Note what the father says. If you can do anything. If you can do anything. We've seen Jesus heal a lot of people in the first half of Mark's gospel. This is common for Jesus to to go into a city, go into a village and to heal people. One of the first people that we see Jesus heal in Mark chapter 1 was a leper. And if you can remember back, this is hard for me to do, but if you can remember back to Mark chapter 1 when Jesus meets this leper... Jesus came and said, uh, or when Jesus came up, the leper said, if you will, you can make me clean. The question from the leper is one of willingness. If you will, you can make me clean. Are you willing, Jesus? I know you can, but are you willing? The question from this father is a different question. He says, if you can do anything. He's not asking the would question. He's asking the could question. The father believed that Jesus would help. Perhaps he'd heard of his grace and his mercy. Perhaps he'd heard of the way that he'd, he'd been healing people and having mercy on people. But could he help? He'd been watching this boy grow up. He'd been watching the way this boy had been agonized since childhood. Could Jesus do anything? Well, hang on. 
He's about to get his answer. Let's continue reading. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And Jesus' response here is one of surprise and excitement, exclamation. My, my Bible has an exclamation point in it. Yours made as well. Verse 23, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus is calling this man to see that divine ability is not the problem. Jesus' ability is not the problem. Human unbelief is the problem. Jesus says back to this man, you say if you can, but that isn't the issue. Of course I can. Of course I can. I'm the son of God. I'm the God who created all things. I created this boy. Of course I can. No, my my friend, the, the question is not if I can. The burden is on you. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Jesus challenges him right here where he's standing. If you can, of course. But do you believe? It's one of the most abused verses in all of the Bible. People love to rip it right out of its context and use it to say whatever they want. That your wishes will come true if you'll just believe. Almost like a Disney movie. Like, like God is just some genie in a bottle. And if you, if you believe it hard enough or long enough or strong enough, then your wish can be granted. That, that, that if you just believe it, it'll happen. And some even teach that you can control God in this way. That if, you, that if you just believe enough, if you just believe hard enough, God has to do it. Friends, that's man-made, man-centered religion. The Bible makes it clear that our faith must never go farther than God's word clearly promises. Our faith must never go farther than God's word clearly promises. There's a couple ways we get this wrong. There's a couple ways we mess up here. And, 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 and by practice, even if we wouldn't say it, take this out of context and misuse this uh, teaching from Jesus. Think of a parent with a sick child. We'll use an, an illustration that's being used in the text today. The parent says, I believe Christ can heal him. Good, he can. I believe Christ can heal him. I also believe that if I will pray in faith, I know and I'm certain that I will be answered by God healing this child wrong. Such a prayer goes beyond God's word. Certainly Christ can heal the child. But Christ has never told the parent in his word that that child will indeed be healed on this earth. Our faith can be misplaced. Second way that we misuse and abuse this text. Other times we may be tempted to believe that God can't do something. That we look at our neighbor or we look at a family member, we look at somebody we've been praying for for years and think they're too far gone. It's impossible for God to reach this person. The, the addictions they have in life, the things they're caught up in, the struggles that they have, that they've hardened their heart to God and, and God can't save this person. In this attitude, we also sin and doubt the ability of our God. The Bible makes it clear that there's a connection between our human weakness and God's divine sufficiency and power. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
The father responds in this moment of questioning from Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. You have to love the transparency here, the honesty here. His faith was trembling, his faith was imperfect, but his faith was real. I'm trying to believe, but I'm also full of doubts, Jesus. I'm trying to believe, but I'm full of doubts. I know my faith is weak. I know it's partial. I know it's lacking. I know it's incomplete, and I know it's uninformed. Still, I trust you only, Jesus. If you don't deliver my son, he will die. Help me in spite of me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Can we get real with God today, church? We're we're not going to confess or say anything to God that he doesn't already know. Yet he desires to hear us confess to him, to call upon him. Listen, it's, it's perfectly okay to go to God and say, God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. God, I trust you, but right now I can't see you. I desire you, but sometimes I desire other stuff more. I believe, but lately I've had doubts that are killing my joy. Can we just be transparent with the Lord like this man was? Not only is that perfectly okay, but God delights in answering that prayer. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I trust you, but I need help right now. I can't see the end of this. I need faith right now. Will you give me that? God is not just some jerk in the sky that's hiding himself from you. God isn't just up there thinking, watch this. I'm going to hide myself where they can't see me. Confess your belief and ask him for more faith when you're going through tragedy, when you're going through trial. The young boy's father says, I'm not full of faith. In fact, I'm riddled with doubts. I can't muster the strength necessary to meet the moral and spiritual challenges that are before me. But please help me. I believe, but I need help in my unbelief. That's saving faith, friends. Faith in Jesus instead of oneself. If you're waiting on on perfect righteousness, if you're waiting on perfect faith before you come to Jesus, you will never come. You must admit to him that you need his help, that you are not righteous. When you say that, you're approaching God in worship. That's what it looks like to approach God in worship, to say, God, I am a man who's unrighteous. God, I believe, but I need you to help me believe. And Jesus recognizes that all of this commotion has caused a crowd to gather He commands the demon to come out. He banishes him from this dwelling place, this host, this boy's body. And the demon has no choice but to obey. Jesus is uh, sovereign. He's in control. He is the authority, and the demon has no choice to obey. But he gives the, the, the boy one last jolt. You see this in the text. One last seizure, if you will. The text says that it was terrible this time. The boy collapsed like a corpse, and everybody thought he was dead. I'm sure immediately the scribes and the critics were saying, see, Jesus just killed him. Yeah, he rid the demon. He killed him. Jesus takes the young boy by the hand and raises him up. In the Greek, New Testament, raised him. And the the, the Greek text actually reads, reads that he raised him and he was resurrected. He rose. And here Jesus is giving the disciples, the crowd, a clear picture of what he's been teaching them, that they've been misunderstanding, that he too will, uh, in a short time, the satanic powers would bring real and actual death to God's son. He would die on a cross, but he would be resurrected in life. Friends, when Jesus gives you faith, that's what you see. When Jesus gives you faith, that's what you see, that the son of God has left heaven and that he's lived a perfect life on earth. 
that he died. He actually died on a cross to bear the wrath that you and I deserved, that I deserved and that you deserved. He bore our wrath on the cross. He took our blame. He took our place. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He was buried, and then in three days he rose again, forever conquering sin, forever conquering uh, death on our behalf. And if we come to him, if we confess our sins, if we repent, place our faith in him, even if it's small and weak, even if it's imperfect faith, faith in his finished work on the cross, we will be saved. Oh, friends, that Jesus would give us faith to see him. The text continues, I told you there were two things that dependence upon Jesus brings. One, faith, he gives us that. Also, our third point, we need Jesus to increase our prayer life. Look at verse 28 and 29. And when he had entered a house, the, the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind, is, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Several things we learn here in these final two verses of the section. First, is that failure, defeat, should cause us to ask some questions. It does for the disciples. Failure, defeat, should cause us to begin to ask some questions. Introspection, looking inward, asking questions of ourselves, is a healthy discipline. It causes us to examine our weaknesses. It causes us to confront our limitations. But don't miss this part. We do that with the gospel. Don't miss this because the New Age movement, Eastern religions are all about introspection, knowing oneself, looking inside, knowing yourself. And that's all just a bunch of junk unless it ends at the gospel. Yes, we need to identify weakness. We, we need to ask questions that would point to our failures, point out our shortcomings and our, the places where we fall short. But know that Christ is the only answer. The gospel of Jesus, that he died in our place, is the only answer for those shortcomings. Self-sufficiency may be valued in this world. It may be something that the world places a priority on. Being able to be sufficient in yourself. But it's deadly to our spiritual lives. The disciples failed miserably. It was public. It was laughable. It cast doubt on their master and his mission. They were filled with self-doubt. And this is obvious by the way that they posed their question to Jesus, right? They go into a house with him. And together, the disciples initiate this, this time of reflection, this debriefing, if you will. They go to him and they ask this question. Why could we not cast this out? And the question itself identifies the source of their confidence. It was in their own abilities. It was in their own strengths. It was in their past accomplishments. Again, Mark 6, chapter 6, verse 13. They'd already cast out demons. They already had experience with this. Already been there, done that. And so you can imagine that when they get to this one, their, their confidence is, well, we've, we've seen this before. We can do this. We've seen Jesus do it. We've done it ourselves. But they can't. So the questions come. They begin to question themselves and their abilities. And this is a good thing because it leads them to Christ. It leads them to pray and to trust in God's ability. Jesus responds to the disciples' question. With, a, with incredible spiritual insight. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind in the text, this kind is, is not a sentence that's referring to uh, some type of, of hierarchy or, or spectrum of demonic power. He is referring to the demon here, but he's also referring to all spiritual conflicts, all spiritual warfare of this magnitude. He's not ranking exorcisms. He's not saying that, well, with some exorcisms, you need prayer. But with other exorcisms, you can just wave your hands or something. You don't really need prayer. He's not ranking them in that way. He's saying whenever we're in spiritual warfare, whenever we're battling against uh, spiritual powers in this world, which is always, 
If we go in our own strength, if we go with our own pride and self-sufficiency, we're going to lose the battle. In fact, we've lost it before it began. The disciples have been trying to perform a prayerless exorcism. They've been thinking that they could just do this because they've been following Jesus around and they've seen him do it. And they miss it, this prayerless exorcism. They miss it for the same reason that they didn't understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. That a few verses ago as he was teaching them about his death, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. And that's the same reason they can't perform this exorcism here. They didn't see how weak they were. They didn't see how much their sin had affected their own hearts. They, didn't, they underestimated the effect of, of sin and evil in the world. And they failed miserably. And faith, friends, don't miss this. Faith is the connection between our human weakness and God's power. And that faith is experienced and exercised through prayer as we commune with God. Is it possible that this is the reason that so many of us would have to admit that we struggle with the discipline of prayer? Could it be that Satan would love nothing more than for you to have a fruitless and frail and non-existent prayer life because he knows the way that God acts and the way that God works through prayer? Could it, could it be that this is why we don't see greater things happening in mission, in the reaching of our community, in, 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 the, in the ministry that we have to our neighbors, as the ministry that we have to our families, in our personal lives at work as we use work for gospel? Is this the reason that we could be seeing so little fruit? It's because we've not spent time with our, with our master in prayer. Faith is the connection between our weakness and the power of God, and it's experienced as we commune with God through prayer. Tim Keller says this, and we're, we're closing. He says, prayer that honors God is characterized by five things. Don't miss these. Prayer that honors God is characterized by five things. Honesty, that you would come before the Lord just as this father did and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. I just want to be honest before you, Lord, right now. I don't, I don't know where to turn, and I don't know the answer to this, and I don't know how to go, but I believe you do. So help my unbelief. Helplessness. Avoiding self-sufficiency. That honors God that we would come before him and say, I'm helpless on my own. Hopefulness. That we have hope in Christ. Specificity. That we're specific about our prayers. We're not just generally speaking, God help all those scenarios in my life today that it would go good. That we come before the Lord with, with specific prayer. And then passion. That we'd come before him meaning it with our whole hearts. That we'd come before him with our wills bent toward him, asking him to do a work in our hearts like life depends on it. Coming before him saying, God, in fact, and it indeed does depend on you. If you act, I'm delivered. If you do not act, I am lost. Do we pray like that? We need Jesus to give us a prayer life like that. Do we have that sort of dependence on Jesus evidenced through our prayers? I pray we would, church family. I pray, Poplar Spring, that we would be a people characterized by prayer. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And God, even when it convicts and, and, and cuts into our heart and reveals uh, sin and weakness, God, we can celebrate that because we find hope in you. That, God, we're not self-sufficient people. That, God, we're not able to make it on our own. That, God, we are lost without you and we desperately need Christ. Father, I pray this morning as we respond to your word that you would give us faith. 
That, God, you would help us to be authentic and transparent and just say, God, we believe, but we need you to help us in our unbelief. So, God, would your word be effective this morning? Draw us to yourself. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.